Good evening and uh, welcome uh, to uh, Worship with a Night, Night Templar. This is episode 40 and uh, we're going to have a prayer for our veterans. Um, then we're going to move on to something new um, from that. It's going to be part one of Revelance of the Bible. And we'll be uh, reading some things from uh, the Revelance of the Bible. H.H. Raleigh. So it's kind of an older book, but I think it contains a lot of information about the relevance of the Bible. All right, uh, let's bow our heads and we'll have a prayer for our veterans. Heavenly Father, you tell us to give you thanks in all things because this is your will for those in Christ Jesus. We enter your presence with a heart of thanksgiving for the veterans who have served while separated from their families. Thank you for their return home from far away duties. We are grateful for their protection and the protection of their families. Lord, our hearts are grateful for your goodness, steadfast love you have for each veteran. We continually, continually remember them in our prayers. Amen. Lord, help homeless veterans get in touch with their family, churches, and mental health programs that will benefit them. Most of these services are free for veterans. Father, restore what has been taken away. Give them a sound mind, a companion to come alongside, and a will to accept help, Lord. Please draw them by your Spirit and give them a desire to know you, Almighty God. You are their help. Amen. Dear God, you know the emotional pain these veterans experience. Give them rest from the PTSD and the negative memories that came. Replace their anxiety with your peace. Bring healing to their hearts and minds of each veteran who is suffering, Lord. You know what each one needs. Grant them wisdom, provisions, and hope to move forward to heal. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear Lord, the loss of a loved one while serving in the military is devastating. We bow our heavy hearts, comfort each grieving spouse, child, parent, sibling, and other family members. Help us to cherish the good memories. You tell us there is a time to be born and a time to die. Help us to know your desire for people to be with you in heaven. Help us to look to you in our grief, for you are our eternal Father. Amen. I want to thank every veteran out there for your service tonight. May God keep you in his arms and bless you many, many times. Now we're going to move on to uh, the relevance of the Bible. Let's go with part one. You know, it's a commonplace that no book in all the world has been subjected to such close or prolonged study as the Bible. 
other religious texts, older than uh, much of our uh, Bible, are still extant and venerated by the devotees of other faiths. But their study has never been undertaken on the scale of a biblical study. Nor has any other book been so widely circulated or translated into so many different languages. Not infrequently is uh, found testimony of uniqueness of this book and its influence upon mankind. For many centuries, the study of the Bible was governed by uh, a static conception of its inspiration, but there was an ever moving center of interest. According to theological and ecclesiastical controversies um, of the times, texts were regarded as a alike inspired, and each side controversy selected such as were of a service and ignored all others, or sought to explain them away. Especially was this uh, so in the period uh, that followed Reformation, when not only did the Protestant and Catholic seek scriptural basis for their mutual controversies, but when the various bodies of the Protestants that came into being sought uh, each to establish by authority of the Bible and rightness of faith and practice. But where was the sacred authoritative text to be found? Hmm. For centuries, the Latin Bible had been the Bible of the Western Church, though its text had not been standardized. We're talking years and years ago. Moreover, uh, before Reformation began, men were turning, in, turning to the Hebrew and the Greek Bibles and studying their text. A year before Luther nailed his pieces to the door of the Wittenberg Church, Arambus had published the first edition of the Greek, of his Greek New Testament, and even earlier, Cardinal... Uh, his name, uh, Igmenis, uh, had printed the most uh, com completion polygot, polylock, which gave the Greek and Latin text of the New Testament and the Hebrew, Latin, and Greek texts of the Old Testament through the publication of this work was not authorized until 1520. To the Catholics, the Latin Bible was the authoritative text, and the Council of Trent laid this down unequivocally and uh, didn't allow anyone and anyone that anyone should presume to reject its authority on a pretext whatsoever. Thereafter, a papal, uh, a papal commission established its text in a form uh, whose publication was alone to be sanctioned henceforth. So to the Protestants, <clears throat> however, the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New were the authoritative scriptures, and it was their text which needed to be established. 
such other ancient uh, versions as could be found in addition to those printed by Cardinal uh, Zeminus were laid uh, under contribution in uh, the great polyglot editions of the Bible, culminating in the uh, that of Brian Walton and the enduring witness to the zeal and devotion and scholarship that were consecrated uh, to the task. It was inspired by faith that the words of this book were finally in controversy, and that therefore it was of supreme importance to know what were its authentic words, the words in which it was written by its divine author. So disagreement as to the text of the scripture and still more controversy as to its interpretation divided men, but there was no fundamental disagreement as to the inspiration or as to the essential nature of that inspiration. In the 18th and the 19th centuries, however, the study of the Bible took on new forms and uh, controversies became more radical. With the, with the rise of rationalism, all the premises of the church were questioned, and the new study of the Bible threatened the foundations of the veneration in which it had been held. The traditions as to date, and the authorships of the various books were challenged one by one. Books were traced back to earlier documents or split asunder uh, and assigned to various authors. And the sense of a divine hand behind the Bible was often lost in the study of human process that brought it together, and it became to many a common book and merely human document. Not all who became the followers of the newer school or biblical criticism were enemies of the faith, however, as their opponents too often affirmed. Um, there were not a few who, alongside the utterly unhampered study of questions of authorship and source, retained a spirit of true reverence for the Bible. Yet, it must be recognized that uh, too many biblical study became a matter of merely scientific investigation. Um, the detects examination of a, uh, ancient literature and the establishment of its text and the meaning of the text had for the original writers. To understand uh, the times in which the book was written, to think oneself back into those times and feel anew the impact of the words upon their first hearers was uh, uh, to reach the goal of the biblical study. Moreover, the 19th century saw the expansion of science and the formulation of the Darwinian theory of evolution. And then, in the philosophical sphere of the word of uh, Hegel, it's H-E-G-E-L, had already prepared the way for this theory. But its formulation in the biological sphere brought a fresh attack on the Bible. Its scientific accuracy was discredited, yet its divine origin and the authority rejected. But we know that all changed years and years later with uh, lots of scientific facts coming out and uh, timeline with the Bible. Here it was uh, by the adaptation of the fundamental principle of development so differently by Hegel and Darwin to the philosophical 
and biological spheres and its application to the religious sphere that the answer was found. Revelation was no longer regarded at this time as the static thing. It had so long been held to be that progress in the religion of the Bible was seen and expounded. Again, however, it must be agreed that not seldom revelation became dissolved in discovery and then the development of religious knowledge unfolded in the Bible. There was found nothing but the evolution of man on the religious side of his being. It was inevitable that this attitude should threaten the position of Jesus in the faith of the church. Too many, he became a mere moment in their religious evolution of man. The stage in the upward growth important is introducing a new era of the religious genius, but no more. His humanity, which had been so largely forgotten in the contemplation of his divinity, was reemphasized to such an extent that his divinity was treated as a mere dog, which could safely be ignored in an effort to get back. in an effort to get back uh, to the Jesus of the first century, to see him with the eyes of his contemporaries and to feel the throbbing vitality of his human voice and touch. Again, biblical archaeology is the creation of the 19th century and its discoveries in that century and expansions in the 20th century have contributed greatly to the study of the Bible. Not a little of its research has been inspired by the desire to establish the accuracy of the historical statements of the Bible, and in recent years the claim is instantly made that it does this. Seldom, however, does archaeology provide a direct confirmation of historical statements found in the Bible. But it does. Today it does. And it's been proven. Um, it greatly complicates the task of uh, the biblical historian, though, at one point. Nevertheless, the rich and abundant material it provides is always the greatest importance of, to the student of the Bible uh, for the understanding of historical and cultural background uh, of the events described in the Bible. In recent years, now, a new change is coming over the biblical study, and that and that this has already taken place. Uh, whose significant is uh, far too little to perceive. The newer attitude does not reject the work of the earlier study, but it seeks to conserve all that is worth in the fruits of every approach. Yet, it desires to transcend them. It accepts substantially the work of the biblical criticism but beyond the desire to know the date and the authorship of the books of the Bible and the meaning they had for their first readers, it seeks the abiding significance of the Bible, and in particular, its significance for this generation, and this, gen and this perfect generation, or not perfect generation, and the generation. It recognizes all the human processes that went into making of the Bible without reducing it to the level of mere 
merely human document. And it acknowledges that it's, its scientific study, which is still valued and continued, is not, is not enough. For the Bible is first and foremost a religious book. Remember that. The Bible is first and foremost a religious book. It must be emphasized that the many-sided work that has been done, mistaken as its emphasis has been often uh, been, uh, is of very great importance. And every side of the work is still continued in advance. The establishment of the text of the Bible still commands much attention and is still far from being achieved. For the Old Testament, the Hebrew text is no more infallible than the Vulgate of the simple reliance upon the polyglot text for the versions um, has long since given place to the recognition that the versions themselves, as well as the Hebrew text, have all had a history and no longer stand before us in their original form. The study of the Hebrew prosody has brought a new instrument for textual criticism. It is not seldom been used for more confidence than the insecurity of the theories that have determined its use has warranted. But its value will survive its abuse. New materials for the study of the Hebrew language are continually coming to light, and many rare forms and words may now be understood instead of being amended. Uh, textual corruption. This happens People try to make the Bible for themselves. Textual corruption must still be often uh, enough found and is not surprising in documents of such antiquity, but there is a less ready resort to conjectural indemnitation today and greater patience in uh, threading the way through the complexities of textual criticism. For the New, the new, the new Testament, uh, has problems. The problems have always been of a different order. The conjectural imitation has never been the bonk of its textual criticism as in the case of the old. Here, the patient examines examination of the uh, many manuscripts and their grouping into classes with a uh, minute study of the religion, or the relations actually, with the uh, within and between the groups, have brought fresh materials for the establishment of the text. The intensive study of the versions here also yields fruit of textual criticism, though the situation is so different from that of the Old Testament. Uh, since here, no manuscripts are extant of any versions anti dating by centuries, the oldest known manuscripts in the original language, which finds of uh, papyri, have added uh, greatly to the knowledge of the Greek queen and have brought much light for the understanding of words and forms in the New Testament. On none of this work is there any disposition to turn back. It's important, its importance is fully recognized but not overestimated. Even if we could establish with certainty the exact text of the Old and New Testament and had a perfect theological knowledge of every word and form they contained, 
we should still need other equipment before we could understand the message of God to men embodied in the Bible. For the Bible is the primary and fundamentally God's word to man. And through all its human processes of authorship and transmissions, there is a divine process. Its recognition is not new, but it is claiming a more central place in the biblical study. And it is that, it's this that constitutes the most significant change. The newer attitude still recognizes the clear marks of the progress of biblical revelation. Yet, it does not reduce revelations to discovery. It does not cease to be interested in the development of religion, but it's the center of interest. And But its center, for sure, is not in man, but in God. It does not find the story of man's growth in the understanding of God, of such absorbing interest that it becomes an end to, in itself, but rather seeks to perceive in every stage of its process that which is enduringly true of God. It is for this reason that there is revived interest in theology of the Old Testament as against the development of the religion of Israel. Does this continue to go on? Eh, I'm sure it does. This does not mean that the eclipse of the historical sense, but the perception that through the historical development, the nature, will, and purpose of God will be unfolded, and that only in their light can the development be rightly understood. It is for this reason, <clears throat> excuse me, that the Old Testament itself so essential to the understanding of the new can never be fully understood with without the new there is a theology of the old testament distinct from the theology of the new yet the one cannot be properly understood without the other it is unnecessary to read back the new testament into the old or to obscure the differences between them but it is necessary it is necessary to recognize that the theology of the new testament is rooted in the theology of the old while the theology of the old testament reaches its full fruitation in the new. No longer, therefore, do we suppose that we have understood words as their first hearers understood them, but we have achieved a goal of biblical study. Too often hearing uh, they had they heard not, and even those who uttered the words can have perceived less of the implications than we should. Magna Carta. Should, and Magna Carta should have a fuller meaning to us, uh, to us who look back on thousands of years of the unfolding freedom to which it led than it could have had though, to those who framed it. And so the work of Moses and Elijah, Moses and, Elijah and Paul lay not uh, alone in what it, in it was in itself but in what has continued to achieve in all ages far beyond their horizons. So is it too with the person of Jesus? The emphasis on his true humanity may be welcomed without lessening the perception of his true divinity. 
we can read the Gospels and see him a real man amongst men without falling into the error of supposing that uh, when we have seen him with eyes, with the eyes of his contemporaries, we have seen him as he was. What we uh, see depends on the eyes we look with, as well as on that whereon we look and they who looked on Jesus, but as the carpenter of Galilee. Albeit as a singular, gracious, and inspiring personality, but who did not see in him the Son of God saw less than we may see. Again, an attitude welcomes the light that archaeology brings to the understanding of the Bible, but it finds a real peril in the attempt to turn it to the establishment of the historical trustworthiness of the Bible. That the Bible has a far greater measure of his trop, historical trustworthiness than any other literature of comparability or any comparable antiquity. It can be established without difficulty, but in, it is quite impossible to establish the historical inerrancy of the Bible, nor can archaeology be said in any sense to establish such inerrancy. All the material that the archaeology provides is to be welcomed and carefully sifted and examined, and all the light that it can shed on the Bible is to be gladly accepted wherever its evidence tends to confirm the trustworthiness or credibility of the biblical statements, it is to be welcomed. But where its evidence goes clearly against biblical statements or creates new difficulties for the biblical historian, this is to be frankly recognized, but is not to be forgotten that the Bible is not a historical textbook, but a religious book. Talked about that earlier. It's a religious book to which God speaks to men. Any understanding which misses this inadequate is inadequate and incomplete. And it's perilous to encourage men to read it for what it is not, instead of for what it is. The newer attitude to the Bible is therefore marked by the utmost frankness and the fullest scholarship, but it perceives that no merely intellectual understanding of the Bible, however complete, can possess all its treasures. It does not despise such an understanding, for it is essential to complete to a complete understanding. But it must lead to a spiritual understanding of the spiritual treasures of this book, but it is to become complete. And for that, Spiritual understanding, something more than intellectual alertness, is necessary. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And the Bible student, which is every one of us on a daily basis, needs an attitude of spiritual receptivity and eagerness to find God that he may yield himself to him if he is to pass beyond his scientific study into the richer inheritance of this greatest of all books. It will be perceived. that none of the elements of this attitude is in itself anew. 
What is growingly characteristic of the present-day biblical study is the synthesis of these elements. There have always been those who have read the Bible as the Word of God, with eager desire to understand its spiritual message to their own hearts. But most of these have had little use for many of the lines of modern study and have retained the older view of inspiration. On the other hand, it is undeniable that there has been a scholarship which has been so exclusively scientific that it has shown no spiritual quality. This has never fully represented the biblical scholarship, though it is often involved in it it in uh, reproach. Today is quite uh, unrepresentative of the scholarship with its fuller recognition of the religious quality of the Bible and its desire not alone to recover ancient situations, cultures, and beliefs, but to find beyond and though through them the one unchanging God revealing himself in all scripture and unfolding this holy will and purpose for mankind, the ancient book, is God's word to us, relevant to the modern world and its own in our hearts. We do it. No, no honor when we bring it closed minds. We must have an open mind. Still less do we honor it when we come to it and closed with closed hearts. All the intellectual acuteness, honesty, and candor on which insisted is so often laid are to be desired, but with them, that spiritual penetration which is given to the pure in heart, blended with them in a single approach to this incomparable book. And as we move on, let's talk about the inspiration of the Bible. The older view of inspiration to which references has already been made regarded God as solely responsible for every statement in the Bible and maintained that its divine origin guaranteed it against all error. Such a view was never free from difficulties, but modern scholarship, modern man, has made it quite untenable, and there are not a few who fear that its abandonment means the abandonment of any real belief in the inspiration of the Bible. They therefore cling to the old view and regard scholarships as an enemy of faith. It is easy to scoff at such an attitude and call it uh, by hard times. Uh, it's easier to observe that the faith that needs thus to protect itself cannot be sure of itself in the ultimately Faith cannot be saved by the abandonment of the intellect. It's uh, more important, however, to show that the flame of faith, precious even when, when it's weak, is not really menaced by true scholarship. This is not done merely by saying, as is not seldom said, that while modern scholarship um, has made impossible the old view of inspiration, it does not threaten a truer view of inspiration, and that while our view of the character of inspiration must be differ from that of our fathers, we may still firmly recognize the reality of inspiration. To deny the older connotations of the term, while 
continuing to use in a, some vague and unspecific sense as an offense like against faith and intellect. And the obligation is laid upon us to redefine the term and to justify our definition at the bar of reason. In the present, therefore, some attempt will be made to do this and to set forth the general principles in the light of which the, any particular passage of the Bible is to be studied, that the older view encountered grave difficulties quite apart from that any modern view or scholarship have created or revealed. Needs little demonstration. It's conceived by human authors of the Bible as passive instruments in the hands of God. Just so you understand that. God, through man, wrote the Bible. God acting wholly under his control and producing a book for those whose, whose every statement, its divine author, was responsible. On such a view, the least error of contradiction becomes of grave importance, for the Bible is wholly of God. Its complete errance should be beyond challenge. Yet, no one can read carefully the books of Samuel and Kings and the books of Chronicles without finding a whole series of glaring contradictions. For instance, in Kings, chapter, I believe it's chapter, First Kings chapter, it's Kings chapter, um, twenty, I think it's chapter thirty. I'm sorry, chapter thirty. Um, let me look it up. Let me take a minute. Excuse me. Look this up. Yeah, it's First Kings. First Kings chapter 15, verse 11. <clears throat> verse 11, uh, 14 says, And Asa did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, but the high places were not taken away, whereas Second uh, Chronicles chapter 2, 5, And Asa did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. Also he took, out, uh, took away out all of the cities of Judah in the high places. We find a similar contradiction in uh, Jehoshaphat, Another one in Kings, 
Second Chronicles. A more familiar contradiction is found uh, Second Samuel, which states that the Lord moved David to number the people, and uh, Chronicles, uh, which attributes this to Satan. Again, Second Samuel says that David brought the threshing floor and oxen of Arana for fifty shekels of silver. Well, First Chronicle twenty-five names the pieces of six hundred shekels of gold. Nor the difficulty of this uh, kind limited uh, two cases of disagreement between passages in the books of Chronicles and passages elsewhere. Um, sometimes you disagree. Uh, sometimes disagreements are found in in one of the same book, even in the narratives that lie side by side or within what appears to be a single narrative and the, the frank recognition of their existence makes it quite impossible to ascribe to God and the, the responsibility for every statement found in Scripture. A single familiar instance may be given in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18. We read that Saul's servants uh, brought him to David, and the son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite, uh, whose skillful playing was calculated to soothe the king when his fits of depression came on him. David is said to have been a skilled warrior at the time, and when the king saw him, he, he loved him greatly and made him his armor bearer. In the following, uh, in, the, in the next chapter, we find, uh, we find that Israel is at war with the Philistines. But the king's father's sheep in the field. I'm sorry, just back up. But the king's armor bearer is far from the royal camp, tending his sheep in the field. Um, gotta read that a little bit more closely. Uh, when he comes to the camp, it is. Uh, not to attend the king, but to bring food to his brothers. And his eldest brother uh, chides him for coming to in terms uh, that do not suggest that an experienced warrior is being addressed. When David hears the challenge of Goliath and goes forth to answer it, Saul fails to recognize him and inquires of Abner his commander-in-chief, whose son the youth is, and when, after the battle, David is brought into Saul's presence, the king asks him the same question. Clearly, therefore, the king wholly failed to recognize one who is representative as having been already his armor-bearer, and uh, lest it should be thought that it merely a matter of arrangement and that what was really an earlier incident in the life of David is recorded out of the chronological order. Um, First Samuel uh, chapter 2 tells us that Saul took David on the day of the killing of Goliath and would let him go no more home to his father's house. Clearly, we have two different and irreconcilable accounts of the introduction of David to the court of Saul. Uh, the one represents him having first come to court when he was a youth, too young to be expected to take part in the battle. As a result of his encounter with Goliath, Goliath I'm sorry, the other represents uh, him as having been introduced to Saul by his own uh, courtiers. 
courtiers as a musician uh, when he had already had some experience of warfare and was therefore too old to be rebuked for appearing on a battlefield. Resort is sometimes uh, had to be suggestion that the Bible does not lie before its original form and that it was the lost original form, which was inerrant uh, work of God, that the Bible does not lie before us in its original form may be readily agreed and something has already been said about the difficulty of recovering the original text. Um, that the present Hebrew text of the Old Testament excuse me, is in many places corrupt and undeniable, and the same may be said for of the Greek and Latin versions of all the other and all the other versions that have been made. Clearly, therefore, there is one existed inherent text as uh, the direct handiwork of God. Its divine author did not think it of importance to preserve it, and once it is admitted that the Bible now in our hands cannot be relied on to give an authentic word of God, the whole basis of the older appeal to it has gone. Nor should it be forgotten that cases that the cases of manifest disagreement rarely found in passages were there is a reason to suppose the textual corruption had taken place. In what sense that uh, can we regard the Bible as inspired? Well, it is sometimes said that the older view regarded the Bible as the Word of God, whereas the modern view that it contains the Word of God. I regard this in quite an inadequate statement. Uh, to me, the Bible is the Word of God. This does not mean that in all parts it attains a uniform level of revelation or that we are justified in thinking that because of the passages of the Bible, it gives us an exact knowledge of history or science or absolute insight into the nature and will of God. Christ alone is the word of God that gives perfect insight to his nature and his will for, for in him alone is absolute revelations of the heart of God. The writers of the Bible were real men responsible for their writings as we are for ours. If you're a writer, you're responsible for your, your writings. The Word of God is mediated to us through the instrument of their personality. God, being personal, cannot adequately, adequately <laughs> reveal himself save through personality and can only reveal himself perfectly in a perfect personality. That is why the Incarnation was necessary for the full revelation of God. It is not something wholly other than the revelation of God in the Old Testament, but it's a climax and crown. God's perfect word is in Christ, who was perfect in himself and perfect in his accord with the divine will. To others, the word was obscured to some extent by the medium through which it passed. But through him and through them, it came through personality. If we pass light through a piece of glass, the result will be affected not merely by the character of the light that falls on a glass, but also by the character of the glass. The light is not derived from the glass through which it passes, but is modified by it. 
unless the glass is flawless and colorless. The whole light that emerges from the glass is to be ascribed to the source, yet equally the whole light may have a quality which the glass has communicated to it. In the same way, divine revelation that comes through the organ of human personality depends on it for its character, not merely on the God who is the sole source of the revelation, but on the organ through which it comes to us. Were the writers of Old Testament helpless instruments in the hand of God, completely controlled by him? The revelation would be independent of their personality, but if they were imperfect and fallible, then their imperfection and fallibilities could uh, not but affect the revelation. It will be seen that I am far from proposing a view which is uh, too common that the writers of the Old Testament, by their own reflection and skill, penetrating insight, saw what they did see of the heart of God and recorded what they had seen. In particular, it is often Suppose that the prophets were men of serious spirit and clear judgment who mediated on the conditions of their day, of their time, in history, and saw the sickness of society and who seized up the world, situation of their times, and who then based on this what they had to say to men. While all, all of this is doubtlessly true to a point, it is wholly inadequate. The prophets would have been the last to claim that it was by their own wisdom and insight that they reached their message and would have rejected the indignation such as the analysts of their work. Their word has never and has was ever, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. And they firmly believed the word they uttered was God's word to their fellows, to a fellow man, to their brothers and sisters. They were indeed men of Saga City, and insight men who mediated profoundly on human affairs, but they were also men who had a great experience of God, who penetrated some of the secrets of God's heart, and who looked on the world in the light of what they had seen of God. Nor did this vision of God's heart come merely from their own effort. It was the grace of God that they received it, and it came to them through revelation, and they freely acknowledged it. It was God's act and not merely theirs. Why, then, was the revelation partial? Why did not God reveal himself perfectly at the very beginning of history. Now, it's easy to say, as uh, we have said, that God could not speak his perfect word to men through personalities of imperfect men, imperfect men, as we talked about the glass. But why could he not reveal himself fully to even imperfect men? For surely here was an immediate process if the Old Testament writers were men who lived with God, who, by the grace of God, were admitted to some of the secrets of his heart, why were admitted to, excuse me, why could they not have been admitted to a fuller understanding? 
Was it that God did not reveal himself perfectly to them because he deliberately withheld something? I don't think so. Not at, not at all. The obstacles to the fuller revelations were not on the side of God. He was willing to reveal himself, but he could not. For the measure of his revelation was conditioned by the capacity of the receiver. Right? Right. In material things, it is uh, true that power to give is conditioned partly by the power to receive. With the best will in the world, it is impossible to put a quart of milk into a pint bottle. In the intelligent world or the intellectual world, the same thing holds. Try to explain the theory of probability or the differential calculus to a child of six. You can. Cannot. Not perhaps because you are unwilling, but because the child could not grasp it at that point. And I'm sure there, and sure today though, I'm sure there's children out there that could. But um, we're talking ancient times. <clears throat> um, in the world of, uh, and in the world of the spirit, same truth holds. But here it is, not intellectual ability, that is the condition of elimination, but the spiritual receptiveness. And even God himself could not communicate himself to men in so far as their spiritual maturity enabled them to receive him. The same truth may be expressed in a different yet uh, familiar way. Um, what we see depends not merely on what is before us, but on the mind of which looks out through our eyes. And that is to say, on the experience which lies behind us, the artist, geologist, and the botanist may look all on the same landscape and see quite, uh, quite different things. Who nature offers equally to them all the same revelations of her treasures, and men who have lived with God have received different things in his heart, not because of any limitation which he has imposed upon them, but because of the limitations of their own soul. The perfect revelation could only be given through the perfect personality. It could equally be given only to the perfect personality. Hence, uh, henceforth, when, when the perfect revelation was given in Christ, it was not given an equal measure through him to all, but only in the measure of their capacity to to uh, apprehend it or comprehend it. Uh, to some, he was merely the carpenter's son. To others, a blasphemer in apparel. To others, uh, in, in, in full goods and the divine glory. Yet, of those who found him, the infulgence of the divine glory, there is none who would claim to have exhausted the treasure of the revelation of God in him. And they who have most largely entered into those treasures are the pure in heart, whose soul is most closely attuned to his. So was it to with those through whom the revelation of the Old Testament was given? Not only did their failings mar the word which God spoke through them and prevent the perfect 
revelation reaching men by their means. But those um, same failings um, marred their own vision of him. They had false ideas of God and cherished false hopes. And these false ideas and false hopes dimmed their eyes. They could neither receive nor communicate the perfect word of God. This, this can perhaps be illustrated by one or two more examples of the Old Testament. Second Samuel, we have the story of David's abortive attempt to bring the ark into the Jerusalem. The ark was placed upon a cart drawn by an oxen, which was uh, driven by Uzzah and his brother. As the cart was going up the steep incline into the city over the rough and uneven road, the oxen stumbled and the cart was tilted. Uzu put out his hand to to, uh, to the ark, and, and we are told that uh, the anger of the Lord blazed forth against him and slew him on the spot. Killed him. Uzu died. Cannot be doubted but that his death was due to divine anger. It could only be interference, and the interference may be rejected with the fullest of confidence. The account of the incident given by the Chronicle uh, would seem to be to imply that it was because Uzzah was not a Levite that this counterattempts happened, um, for it's there that's recorded on that second occasion when the attempt, uh, this time too successful, was made to bring the ark into Jerusalem. David was carefully employed, he employed Levites to carry it, and it was stated explicitly in Chronicles, First Chronicles, that David recognized that the mishap was due to the non-employment of Levites on this first occasion. According to the contextual law, as it now stands before us, none but Levites should approach the ark, and certainly Uzzah was no Levite. Was it then, because Uzzah, despite the fact that he was not a Levite, presumed to touch the sacred ark, that he called down divine wrath upon himself? Many considerations so quite uh, conclusively that this was not the reason. In the first place, the ark had been kept in the house of Uzzah's father for many years without calling down divine wrath. In the second place, since by even the Chronicles admission, no Levites were employed on this, lo this occasion, the ark must have been placed on the cart by non-Levites, yet no divine anger vented itself immediately upon them. Further, when David decided to deceased desist from the attempt to take the ark into Jerusalem, he placed it in the house of uh, Obedienum, the Jitite. But so far, from divine anger being shown on this breach of the law, marked blessings came to Obadidum. Moreover, it was clear that uh, from the account of Second Samuel, that David was quite at a loss to understand the mishap. And even when the ark was moved, <coughs> uh, excuse me, moved the second time and successfully brought into Jerusalem, the account there was nothing, uh, whatever the Levites, uh, says nothing whatever about the Levites. It does, however, show that David was careful not to employ a cart on the occasion, but to have the ark carried. 
it is clear that if we judge the incident from a standpoint of uh, penitential law, um, as we now have it, the whole proceeding was flagrant violation of the law at many points, and it is equally clear that David would be the person responsible for the violation. It would be quite a line, alien, or alien, to the character of God to blaze forth against the against Uzzah because having been wrongly put by the king in charge of the ark, he endeavored to discharge his duty. The last consideration may seem at first to be a purely subjective one, but this we shall return below to show that it rests on more of a solid basis. A modern pentatual criticism, modern criticism, of course, assigns a regulation of concerning the ark to which reference has been made to the last strand of dating from the time uh, long subsequent to the age of David. This explains why David was conscious of uh, no wrong in trusting Uzzah with the task and Uzzah of none in the undertaking of it. Um, the accounts for David's complete ignorance of the reason for the death of Uzzah as well as for the lack of any indication in the narrative of Second Samuel that uh, his being a non-Levite had anything to do with it. But at that moment, I'm only I'm concerned to you should be concerned that uh, to argue that quite apart from the modern criticism and the explanation of the incident offered in the biblical sources reflects men's false ideas of God rather than the authentic revelation of his will. It is not indeed a clear exact what had happened or how Uzzah was killed, but that his death in some way immediately followed his attempt to support the ark can uh, scarcely be doubted. The ark was so closely associated with God in the minds of the Israelites that Uzzah's death was immediately attributed to the activity of God, just as when in the days of Samuel, the ark was carried on the battlefield of Aphek. The Philistines uh, said, God is come into camp. It was their own preconceptions uh, which made the interpret the fatal mishap which Uzzah suffered as the proof of God's anger. But if the character of God is unchanging, then it can never be have been true that uh, he blazed forth in anger against a man who wholly praiseworthy act, wholly praiseworthy act of trying to prevent the ark which had been entrusted to him from falling. Yet, not only did the people of and David believe this, but it was clear that the writers of the books of Samuel and Chronicles believe it too. To take another case in Second Samuel, uh, let's read there was a famine in the reign of David. The king and the king inquired through sacred oracle as to the cause of the famine and received the answer that was due to Saul's slaughter of the Gibeonites some years before. We have no record of Saul's slaughter of the Gibeonites, unless, as many believe, uh, we should identify Nob with the Gibeon. But apparently at some point in his reign, Saul had slain Gibeonites. 
David therefore summoned the Gibeonites and asked what satisfaction they desired. They asked for seven of Saul's descendants to be given to them to be hanged. David's immediately granted their requests and uh, they were hanged and their bodies left for the birds to prey to devour. And then we have a haunting picture of uh, Rizbah, Saul's concubine, going out to keep watch over those bodies night and day through all the period of the harvest, suffering neither birds of prey by day nor prowling beasts by night to touch the corpses. And we read that after the that God suffered himself to be entreated into the famine past. Can this again ever have been true to the character of God? Can he really have desired this or have found any satisfaction in it? Here once more we find flagrant violation of the law of Deuteronomy where we read, The father shall not put be put forth be put to death for their children, neither shall the children be put to death for their fathers. Deuteronomy. That's but this time, the violation, instead of drawing down divine wrath, appeases it. <coughs> Excuse me. On the older view, <coughs> Excuse me. that the whole of the thing was written by a breach of Boy, excuse me. <coughs> All right. Where was I? Okay. Was written by Moses. Therefore, we have to hear the divine approval of a breach of divinely given law. There can be nothing sacrosanct about it, about the view which requires us uh, to dishonor God. We can't. Again, <clears throat> Modern criticism established that uh, the book of Deuteronomy was not yet written in the time of David. And its provisions were therefore unknown to David and the Gibeonites. We cannot charge them, therefore, with any breach of the law which has not yet been delivered. But even so, the theological problem remains until we recognize that this incident in no way reflected the true will of God. For to suppose that God once delighted in what he afterwards prohibited would be. To suppose that God himself had developed and uh, however 
progresses and revelations is to be explained, it cannot be by so spiritually revolting view. It can never have, and even after the death of Saul, brought famine upon the nation because of that act, and was appeased by the barbarous sacrifice of innocent victims, is easier to believe that men falsely thought that this was his character and that they were blinded by their own prejudice and foolish thoughts, <clears throat> and that they were wrongly ascribed to him what was alien to his heart. But does, but does not this mean that we are taking away from the objective character of the revelation of the substituting a purely suggestive test for what is of God and what is not? But what principle shall we determine whether, when we read that God demanded a certain action from men, he did really demand it, or whether they put... They just misunderstood it, misunderstood his demand. By what principles shall we determine whether when a prophet says, Thus saith the Lord, it is really the authentic word of God, or whether it is but the partially understood and perfectly transmitted message of God? Is it not much easier to accept the Old Testament in a plain, unvarnished way as it stands than to establish canons of differentiality? By no means. That way, as I have talked about, is spiritually unsatisfying since it involves dishonoring God. God is one and unchanging in character, and his character is perfectly revealed in Christ. If his actions or his demands were ever inconsistent with his character as revealed in Christ, then we were unworthy of him. In any other view, then, this threatens the foundations of the religion far more seriously than does the modern view of the Bible. Nor does this substitute a purely subjective standard for the objective character of revelations. It substitutes as the standard the revelations given in Christ. All that we learn of God in the Old Testament that is in harmony with the revelation given in Christ, is truly of God. It came to men by divine revelation, for without revelation man cannot attain the knowledge of God. And all that we learn of God in the Old Testament that is not harmony with the revelation given in Christ is not of God. It represents the misunderstandings of God by sincere men whose view was distorted by the eyes through which they looked upon him. <clears throat> By this test, we may establish the story of Uzzah presents a false view of God. For in the days of our Lord, men still cherished the view which appears in that of the story and regarded a fatal accident as proof of the divine anger, and he reputed it. Men came to him and told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices, and he replied, Think ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans? I tell you, nay, or those eighteen upon whom the tower of Solom fell, 
and killed them. Think ye that we were defenders above all men that dwell in Jerusalem. I tell you nay. Luke. It's in Luke. In such a view of God was false the first century of our era. It was equally false in the time of David. May not then uh, hold the Old Testament as the encumbrance of to religion, and that it were better deleted from the Bible of the church? If the revelation of the Old Testament must be tested by the revelation in, the, in Christ, would it not be better to discard the Old Testament? No, surely. No, no, no. It belonged in the Bible. It belonged in the Bible of the church from the very beginning, before there was a New Testament. And without it, much of the New Testament would be unintelligible. For the New Testament is the crown of culmination of a long historical process in the light which alone can be understood. While it provides a standard by which the Old Testament must be tested, the Old Testament is equally necessary to its complete understanding. Beyond this, the Old Testament is unraveled. It's an unraveled treasury of spiritual experience, speaking authentic and enduring messages from God. Its narratives need to be rightly understood, but given the understanding, they may minister greatly to the strength and riches of the spiritual life. In calling the New Testament the crown of a long historical process, we imply that there was progress, revelations. Um, at the same time, I have you got to reject the idea that there was progress in God or in God's willingness to reveal himself. you got to reject that part. It's, it's not true. What limited the revelations was not God's willingness to give, but man's capacity to receive, for he could only reveal himself to men insofar as they were spiritually able and willing to receive his revelation. And here, here, you would have to say afresh the half-truth which is so common. Um, when it is said that the Old Testament is the record of man's search for God and revolt against the older idea of the Old Testament is purely supernatural book, every statement of which guaranteed by its divine author, not a few have regarded as purely a human document reflecting man's groping after God and growth in understanding of him. But this falls seriously short of the truth. No good teacher would attribute the progress of the distinguished pupil solely to his own teaching skill, nor would the pupil show wisdom in attributing it solely to his own intelligence and diligence. In a sound education, there must be cooperation between the teacher and the pupil. So with this process of revelation, man's search for God and God's reaching out to man are two sides of a single process, and the process is gravely misrepresentative if but one side is considered. Man can never, by the mere exercise of his own powers, attain unto the knowledge of God unless God were willing to give himself unto him. But on the other hand, God could not thrust the knowledge of himself upon men. Men aren't perfect. It is of his grace 
that he is ever seeking to give himself unto them. But he can do so only in so far as they can and will receive him. And even their capacity to receive him is itself his gift, which grows by its exercise. The Old Testament is therefore neither a purely divine nor a merely human document. There are divine and human favors woven together in it. you got to say, not that it is the record of man's progressive search for God, but that it is the record of man's growing experience of God and progressive response to God. Um, as such, it's a religious book of inestimable value. You can't put a price on it. There's no money in the world. that you can put on the Bible. None. There's not enough of it. It's clear that on the view of inconsistencies that are found in the Bible, and again, that goes back to man's concept, what he views. Um, Bible no longer provides any stumbling blocks. I remember, uh, this is coming from a gentleman by the name of H.H. H. Raleigh, by the way, um, he tells a story about a Chinese Christian coming to him uh, once in a great distress. He had to read uh, Stephen's speech in Acts and how Stephen said that Abraham came out of the land of Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from thence, when his father was dead, God removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. But he had to read in uh, Genesis, uh, the Terah lived 70 years and begat Abraham, or Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And in Genesis 4, that Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. But Genesis uh, 32 says that uh, Terah lived to be 205 years old, according to these passages. Therefore, Abram departed from Haran some 60 years before his father's death, and not when his father was dead. The good man was in great trouble about this discrepancy simply because he had been taught uh, an untenable view of inspiration. He had been taught to regard God as responsible for the exact form of all these texts, and the inconsistencies meant to him that the Bible was not reliable. God was not reliable, and the foundations of his faith were rocking under him. But if inspiration works, not by the suspensions of human personality, but by the organ of human personality, and if the human and divine factors are woven together in it, then we may be prepared to find errors and inconsistencies as well as imperfect views of God without at the same time ceasing to find God's living word in, and through it. Errors of imperfection uh, we find in no sense challenges the foundation of our faith for that rest not on the view of inspiration but on the living experience of grace and of God and Jesus Christ. In the same way, our view of inspiration frees us to examine without prejudice and without fear the processes by which the books of the Old Testament grew without leading us to regard them as common 
for making us cease to find them in revelations of God, we can find without being disturbed, for instance, two accounts of setting up the monarchy in Israel, 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 um, dominated by quite different attitudes towards the institution of the monarchy without finding, failing to find a religious value in both. Similarly, with the Old Testament prophecy, we can recognize quite frankly that many of the prophecies of the Old Testament have never been fulfilled and can yet find the study of the prophets spiritually satisfying. For instance, we read Jeremiah, the Lord hath stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes because his device is against Babylon to destroy it. In the same chapter, the kings of Medes are called upon to prepare themselves against Babylon. And verse 29 declares that the purpose of the Lord against Babylon do not stand to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant. Similarly, in Isaiah, behold, I will stir up the Medes against them against the people of Babylon. And their bows, their bows shall dash the young men in pieces, and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes shall not spare children, and Babylon, the glory of kingdoms. The beauty of the Chaladins, pride shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. None of this was fulfilled before Babylon fell. The Median kingdom fell, having been conquered by Cyrus who added to its, his kingdom when the Babylonian Empire fell, it fell to Cyrus and not to Medes. Moreover, it fell without bringing the horrors of war upon its city itself. There was a battle at Opus. And within a few days of Cyrus's victory there, Babylon was yielded to him without a siege or without a struggle. So far from the city being sacked and transferred was entirely peaceable. And deeds of contract for the sale of property continued to be drawn up. So far from the city being made desolate and without inhabitant or treated like Sodom and Gomorrah, Cyrus made it his capital in which he resided for a large part of every year. So long as we regard prophecies as a wholly supernatural prediction or events of events under the complete control of God, a single such instance is disquieting. But if we hold that there was in the prophet of the gift of divine illumination, which came to him from God, but that the form of the message owed something to himself, we are not... Uh, shouldn't be surprised to find his presentation of a true message from God marked also with his own unjustified expectations and that what we find here, the fundamental heart of the message was fulfilled. The Babylonian Empire was indeed doomed, as these prophets said. They wrongly identified the conquering power. They wrongly outlined the details of the fall. But the essence of their word was justified. A greater example may be found in Jeremiah's prophecies concerning his own people. When he began his ministry, hordes of uh, Scythian nomads were moving down through Syria, ravaging and destroying and spreading terror before them. In Jeremiah's vision, Jeremiah's vision of the cauldron, blown down from the 
North seems to uh, have had relations to that situation. And the prophet thought God was going to use the instrument of the uh, Scythians to visit on Judah. Their sins. And he issued his prophecy of impending doom. But the Scythians passed down the coast, rode to the border of Egypt. There, the Pharaoh persuaded them to buy a large gift to refrain from entering Egypt. And they returned northwards, leaving Jeremiah a discredited prophet. Twenty years later, the Egyptian army met the army of, uh, oh, what is the name? Nebuchadnezzar, I think it's how it's pronounced, at Carchesmus, uh, and was defeated and fled homewards, being hotly pursued by the I can never say this word, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and his army. Again, Jeremiah appears to have believed that this new peril from the north was to bring a divine judgment upon his people. But, like the Syntherians, went by Judah to the borders of Egypt, where he received news of his father's death and turned around and hurried back to Babylon as fast as he could. Again, therefore, Jeremiah was discredited. He seems to have been deeply concerned he deeply concerned himself as a non-fulfillment of his prophecies. He had not wanted to prophesy disaster. Indeed, he dreaded the thought of it. Yet, he had felt an irresistible inner constraint to utter the word. And then, it was not fulfilled, and he cried out against God, roundly declaring that he had deceived him and made him a laughingstock. Often, he vowed within himself that he would... Uh, prophesies no more. But no sooner had he done so that he felt as it uh, was like a fire burning in his bones. He couldn't be contained, that he had burst forth into prophecy again. 20 years, this was 20 years later, when they, when they first marched to Syria. His armies were on the march again. This time against Jerusalem. We're talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Um, this time against Jerusalem. Once, in the meanwhile, he had uh, moved his columns against the city and he had carried captive many of its people. And by now, he was coming to the stamp out the fresh rising of the western states. Uh, notable amongst which was Judah, against Jeremiah prophesied doom. And this time doom fell upon the city of Jerusalem, complete and uh, appalling. And now it was clear that throughout Jeremiah had not been so wrong as it appeared. God had been more long-suffering than he had imagined, and the, and the nation had 40 years more grace than he had at first. Uh, supposed possible. He had uh, mistaken the time and the manner of the judgment, but he had not mistaken its certainty. 
the nation that was flouting God in all its life, both public and private, that was basing all its life on principles alien to his will, uh, must bring disaster upon itself, and even the divine love had no means of exposing its folly but letting it drink the bitter cup of experience. So again, there was a fundamentally uh, sound message ringing through Jeremiah's words, though he had clothed the message uh, in a form which was not wholly true. But of what importance is this to all of us? What have uh, Israel's history and Israel's sins and Israel's sufferings to do with our modern world? Nothing. If that were all, but the Old Testament, Testament is not merely of uh, even primarily of historical, historical record. It is, no, it, it is more concerned with the enduring lessons of history than with history itself. And the message of the Old Testament writers, while it was always a message addressed primarily to their own people and to their own times and related to their own circumstances, the thought of and the outlook of their contemporaries was also an expression of timeless principles which are of abiding value to men. Take even so unpromising a story of that of Saul. Saul's war with the Amalekites, recorded in 1 Samuel. Here, we, here you can read that Samuel went to Saul and said, said that because <coughs> Saul said that because centuries earlier the Amalekites uh, had been unfriendly to the Israelites, it was God's will that Saul should uh, make an attack upon them. And they exterminated the whole race. It is impossible for us to suppose that God could really commend such principles for their application to our modern world would speedily reduce it to a shambles. We do not need to suppose that this was an authentic voice of God, but rather that it was an expression of ideas that were current in Israel in those days. Often in a campaign, either in its opening battles or in some particular critical engagement, Israel would vow beforehand that the entire army, the enemy, the entire enemy forces, and all their material treasures would be destroyed as an act of sacrifice to God. The same practice was also current among Israel's neighbors, and it's doubtless rested on the belief that such vow would, <clears throat> excuse me, be likely to stimulate the nation of God to his utmost to ensure victory. So Samuel, speaking as he believed and as Saul believed in the name of God, commanded Saul to go and, and treat the Amalekites in this fashion. But through Saul won the victory. He did not carry out the ban. He spared the king of the Amalekites and the choicest of the spoil and returned home. And Samuel's anger blazed against Saul, who tried to defend himself by saying he intended to offer the spare soil in the sacrifice of sanctuary. This excused Samuel and had brushed aside with the great word, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of the rams. Here is the authentic word of God, even from the midst of this up, unpromising passage enunciating and enunciating uh, an enduring principle. 
Had Saul spared any of the spoil because he doubted whether God did really love his wholesale destruction or recoil from the same indiscriminate slaughter because he could not believe it was really the will of God that it should take place. We could have respected him. He stands self-contempt because he was false to his own beliefs because while persuaded that God delighted in the ban and that he was divinely commanded to put it to execution, he failed to do so at the call of nothing higher than selfishness. It is for us to translate the enduring principle into those terms of our own life and our own experiences and our own beliefs. There is another feature of enduring significance that stands out again and again and again and again in the records. It is that religious advance came time again and again through the private experience of some individuals that the men who gave God's word to Israel constantly received their message through their own personal experience. Three, three familiar examples uh, suffice. Moses in Egypt saw the wrongs of his people suffered with growing indignation until one day he slew the Egyptian. Then he fled to the desert. It's inconceivable that he who exile was born of his sympathy for his suffering brethren did not often think of them in the wilderness and, and brood over their suffering. And one day there was born in his heart a certainty that a, that a God whose very name was unknown to his people and setting his seal on the sympathy of his heart and sending him into Egypt to lead the people out. This was a new and incredible thing in the world. For God to adopt a people, weak and persecuted, and deliver them was a thing unknown. But Moses responded to the call, which came along lines so much in accord with the sympathy of his own heart. And the result was the covenant of Sinai. When the people in solemn gratitude pledged themselves to God who had rescued them, Hosea faced with a tragedy that would have broken the faith of most men, found a deeper faith. His wife was faithless, and though he loathed her faithfulness, faith faithlessness and sin with all his soul he could not cease to love her the very depth of his love increased the agony he endured and by the agony he endured he found a new understanding of the heart of god and perceived that it was supremely a heart of love jeremiah the loneliest of men persecuted by his own family a laughingstock to the people, a traitor in the eyes of the court, excluded from the temple, imprisoned in a foul dungeon, found a deeper intimacy with God, and realized more fully than any other Old Testament character the rich meaning of prayer. And he more than any other insisted that the true character of, of religion is inner, and that it consists not in our outer rites and ceremonies, but in the inner purity of the Spirit, while the real covenant is not that written on stone, but that written on the living tables of personality, of your own personality. Here, 
you can you you, you can see to so to speak the the process of inspiration is was not the case of the writer's hand but being supernaturally controlled to write words that came to him wholly from without it was the case of men who by the submissiveness to god with which they faced their experience found something that far transcended uh, in significance the circle of their own experience the process was not of course always the same god's method of approach are infinitely varied but the examples at which we have looked sufficiently illustrated the principle that inspiration came not from the suspension of a personality but through the organ of personality that the message it brought was never unrelated to the writer's own thought and outlook but always closely related to it and that the form into which he cast the message owed much to him and was not therefore perfect the perfect word of God. Yet, in so far as it was the word of God, it was the it was of abiding significance. They who would understand the Old Testament must read it for what it is and not for what it is not. Must read the stories. Must read its stories. You you need to not as exact records of history um, inherent. Um, in every detail, or as authoritative revelations of the future, or even as a wholly trustworthy revelations of God, but rather as experiences and thoughts of men who reached out after God and responded to God's reaching out after them, or something indeed closed closed their lives against God. They brought him, and and who in the measure of their sincerity or their purity of their heart found him and into that inheritance of whose experience we have come that is why we cherish their memory we do not in superior contempt smile upon them because they did not attain all that was granted to us rather do we humbly acknowledge that ourselves had we begun with their inheritance we had not attained all that they did. Many have failed to learn the lessons of their experience and have failed to receive or communicate the things that God sought to say to them and through them to others. But the writers of the Old Testament, in the measure of their obedience to the vision of God given unto them, made possible for themselves and for those who inherited from them a larger vision. Most of uh, what has so far been said has concerned uh, primarily and exclusively the Old Testament. But what of the New Testament? What of the New Testament? Can this absolutely be absolutely relied on the given Word of God in a form whose every detail may be unquestionably accepted? Is this the process of inspiration different in the New Testament from that of the Old? Or is this, too, mediated through fallible human personality and therefore, to use again the metaphor already employed, liable to be colored by the glass through which it passes, that the writers of the New Testament were real men can scarcely be gainsaid. The literary style of Paul is different from that the author of the Epistle of the Hebrews, while that of Mark is different from that of the Fourth Gospel. 
the individuality of the various writers comes out again and again and again and again in the narratives of the gospel, in the selection and the incidents recorded and in the little touches that are included in the narration or omitted from it. The word of God is manifestly mediated through the mind and personality of the writers as truly as in the case of the Old Testament. We must therefore again be prepared to find inaccuracies and reflections of the ideas and expectations of the fallible authors. That the case is an important uh, respects different from the Old Testament is, however, not surprising. The whole of the New Testament was written within a short space of time compared with the Old Testament and proceeded from a small group of people who were governed by a common point of view on the major matters of which they wrote. In the uh, Synoptic Gospels, we have three works dealing with a common subject, but they were not governed by fundamentally different attitudes to that subject as were, say, the different accounts of the founding of the monarchy in the Old Testament. Hence, the differences that abound in their narrations of the same events and the utterances of Jesus have not signified and were not significant of the differences already noted in the Old Testament. They are mostly too trivial to be styled contradiction or inaccuracies, though they are sufficient to show that they were the fruit of human minds and that the inspiration is here fundamentally the same as in the Old Testament. Um, there are, however, some differences between the synoptic gospels and the fourth gospel, which seem to reflect a definite difference of the viewpoint on matters where both can hardly be correct. Thus, according to the first three gospels of the Lord's Last Supper and his disciples was a Passover meal. In Mark, we read that on the morning of the day of which the Passover was sacrificed, the disciples asked Jesus where he would have them prepare the Passover. And the following verses recorded that in accordance with uh, his instructions that they made ready for the Passover. With this, Matthew and Luke are in full agreement. On the other hand, the fourth gospel represents Last Supper as something other than a Passover meal. Thus, John says that during the night that followed the Last Supper, the accusers of Jesus would not themselves enter the praetorium, lest they should be defiled and so be unable to eat the Passover. To this, the author, therefore, the Passover was not yet slain, and the death of Jesus on the cross synchronized with the killing of the Passover sacrifice. He, according to accordingly, uh, the records, no suggestion that Jesus thought that of the Last Supper as a Passover meal. Similarly, the fourth, the fourth gospel differs from the others in representing the cleansing of the temple as having taken place at the beginning of our Lord's ministry. <clears throat> John, instead of at the end, uh, Mark, and uh, parallels, they both parallels. These differences uh, from the synoptic uh, gospels would seem to be deliberate. It has been uh, said above the Old Testament was not written to be a textbook of history or of science, but its fundamental purpose was to record spiritual experiences and spiritual teachings. Similarly, the Gospels were not written as scientific biographies, but to serve 
a religious community? Need we be any more be any more troubled by our by such differences uh, are founded in the Gospels than by more considerable differences to which the attention has been drawn to the Old Testament? To this, it may be answered that it has been argued that Christ is the standard by which the spiritual teachings of the Old Testament is to be judged. Yet, uh, yet. Where shall we find Christ if the Gospels are not absolutely to be relied on? The differences between the utterances as recorded in the differences Gospels are not seldom pressed to lead to the conclusion that there are few words of his of which can be, ass- be sure and Jesus himself as representatives as holy seen green. From us, uh, by the evangelist, um, this uh, would have seemed to dissolve in the midst of uncertainty to him. Um, uncertainty, uh, him uh, who has been held to be the touchstone of the inspiration. Such a view seems to be entirely without justification. As biographies, uh, as biographies, the Gospels are very meager records. They record incidents. Uh, ascribed to a pitiful few, pitifully few of the days of his life. Yet, it can hardly be supposed that on all the other days of his life, he neither did nor said anything that was worth recording. Nevertheless, by the reading of the gospel, all of them, we feel we know him far better than we know many others and many another from the reading of the deeds of Jesus. They are best but fragmentary as a revelation of him that they are they are complete. And from their study, we know him and, and know his spirit with assurance. If four or five competent artists were to paint portraits of a single man, there would inevitably be innumerable differences of detail in their work. There would be many differences in the shape or proportion of this feature or of that of coloring in the hair and the complexion. But their study would not lead to a complete skepticism as to what the person painted would really look like. On the contrary, the study of them would yield a very much better idea of the appearance of the subject of the paintings than any one of them alone could. Similarly, the examination of four or five newspapers published in a single city on a single day would often uh, reveal great differences in the in the picture of, of the previous day's events. Does that happen today? Certainly it does. Not all news stations report the same area, unless it's uh, something of great importance. But, Therefore, we will be considerably, there will be considerable uh, variety of details and not seldom disagreement and uh, added not a few points. Yet no sane man concludes that contemporary happenings are unknowable and that the only complete skepticism is justified. 
he rather concludes that by the study of a number of newspapers, he can gain a fuller and truer picture of events than uh, by the study of anyone alone. Even so, it is with the study of the Gospels, each gives us not so much a series of incidents from the life of Jesus as a portrait of him and a revelation of his spirit. We may know him from any one of them, but we know him much better from them all. It is he who is the effulgence of the divine glory and not his words and deeds alone. So not his words and deeds alone. The divine glory. Divine glory. However incomplete we can find him. Nevertheless, it is true that he who is in himself the perfect revelation of God to men is himself mediated to us in some measure by men, and therefore imperfect. The Gospels contain the things that men remembered about him. When when he was no longer with them in the flesh, in human memory it is rarely infallible, accurate in its details. The epistles of Paul were occasional letters arising sometimes out of circumstances at the moment. But enabling the apostle to express truth and principles that far transcended the occasion that they called them forth and that embodied his understanding of the significance of Christ. Not seldom Paul is contrasted with Christ and his teachings represented as something quite alien to the teachings of Christ. Just as in the old, in the case of the Old Testament, writers, so here some would regard his writings as expressingly merely his own reflection and opinions, while others would regard them as authoritative words of God, which must be accepted without question as final for all Christians. The truth would seem to be that Paul was charged, he was charged with a divinely given message, but that for the form in which it was delivered, he was himself responsible. He was the ambassador, not the postman. Similarly, too, with the other New Testament writers, a single illustration uh, will suffice. Most of the New Testament writers looked on a catastrophic end of the existing world order and the establishment of a new world order. Oh, that sounds familiar to be ushered in by the physical return of Christ to the earth. And there are not a few passages where this is promised for the near future. Now it is high time for you to wake out of sleep, said Paul, for the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Again, the Lord is at hand. Similarly, James says the coming of the Lord is at hand. In the first epistle of Peter, the end of all things is at hand. While in the Apocalypse we find, Behold, I come quickly. As the years passed by, however, and these expectations were not realized, doubts began to rise in the second epistle of Peter, 
endeavor to just set them uh, at rest by the suggestion that time does not count to God, count with God, and that a single day with him is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. But this is still left unexplained in the, in the clear failure of, of the Pauline hope of the Pariahs uh, within his own lifetime. Uh, for the New Testament, no more than for the old. Therefore, can inspiration be supposed to yield us verbal infallibility? Large questions still remain to be asked. However, or why may be said, should any further writings be necessary after the Gospels, if Christ is the climax of the divine revelations, the standard by which the truth and spiritual essence of all Old Testament revelations is to be tested, should not the Gospels, which have been declared above all, to yield to real knowledge of him and his spirit, have formed the close, close of the scripture record? If the Old Testament is a record of man's progressive experience of God and responses to God, surely it might seem it would have been fittingly terminated by the story of him, whose experience God was perfect, and whose response to God was matched in its perfection only by his experience. If revelation here reached its goal, should not revelations here have ceased? To ask the question uh, is... To, to misunderstand the whole message of the New Testament. It is messaged throughout and not merely in the Gospels in Christ. The Gospels show him to us in the flesh amongst men, but they, but they all end by declaring that he who died was alive. The rest of the New Testament presents him still alive and active amongst men, though no longer visible in the flesh, and the picture of Christ without these other books would be quite incomplete. In the Gospels, we see how he impressed those amongst whom he walked Palestine. But in the rest of the New Testament, we see how he continued to impress those who knew him, not after the flesh. That is the first importance of to men of all succeeding generations in all, in all, in all countries who are denied uh, such knowledge of him as he was given to those first contemporaries, um, but who may still, like Paul, find him their contemporary in every age. It is not as it's sometimes supposed that the Gospels we see him as he was, And in the epistles, we see him as men afterwards interpreted him. In the Gospels, we see him ultimately through the eyes of those who, com who accompanied with him in the flesh. In the epistles, too, we see him through the eyes of those who accompanied him through in the Spirit alone. Their company with him was no less real, and Paul could describe the intimacy of his fellowship in the words, I live. And yet no longer I, but Christ liveth in me. His message was received in the intimacy of that fellowship and the fundamentally the unfolding of the significance of, of his experience. The final revelation is not in the New Testament, therefore, but Christ 
who is the theme of the New Testament, by him, the truth in the Old Testament is tested. And he gives the measure of its inspiration by him to uh, the New Testament. The New Testament is to be estimated, and the, the men through whom we know him are to be judged. When they treat uh, trivial things as even Paul could, and not uh, the essentially spiritual things in which our Lord was interested, they speak with but human authority. Thus, when Paul lays down the principle of that woman uh, must keep silence in the church, in Corinthians, or that the woman must not pray unless they have uh, their head covered. <clears throat> Excuse me. He may have been giving uh, sound counsel to the Corinthian church in the view of a local conditions, but he was hardly enunciating, uh, enunciating uh, any universal spiritual principle binding on all men as a divine command. The gospel records that Anna, prophetess, gave thanks to God and spoke, spoke of him, an example of Jesus, to all of them that were looking for redemption of Jerusalem within the sacred precincts of the temple. Let's take Luke and Paul himself, uh, were surely more completely inspired and enunciating the, a principle of more enduring validity when he said, there can be, quote, there can be neither Jew nor Greek. There can be neither bond nor free. There can be no male and female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Unquote. The recognition of the inspiration of the scripture does not involve them. The elevation of its letter to be a final and unchallengeable authority for men. The reformers challenged the Catholic view of the authority of the church, and they exaggerated the authority of the Bible in such a degree that for many it became the sole and supreme authority. Yet, if the church is the body of the Christ, capable of being guided into all the truth by the spirit of truth, it too should be the vehicle of inspiration invested with the authority besides the authority of the Bible. Neither, however, can be ultimately authority for Christians. For the authority of both the scriptures and the church goes back to the authority of Christ. Neither the Bible nor the church can take his place, though both may lead us to him, for God is a spirit. And through spirit, he speaks his final word to us. Our desire for something lower than spirit, something more tangible and certain, as we imagine, does not honor Christ in whom, and not alone, through whom, is God to be seen. That's all I'm going to have today. Uh, stay tuned for the second part tomorrow. And that is uh, worship with a heights temper. That's what I call it. <coughs> and uh, this little thing we're doing is the relevance of the Bible. That's by H.H. H. Raleigh.
I read a lot of the stuff from him. A lot of this comes from his book. This is a very old book. In, it was made in Great Britain. Um, it's a very old book, and it has a lot of good information in it, and I'm going to continue with that. And so tune in tomorrow night. It'll be 8 p.m. Central Time. And uh, I'm also part of a, a Templar Night group, Night Templar group. And you can check us out at www. American Knights Templars.com. And I usually say uh, prayers in the beginning, or I can say them at the end. If you have a prayer request, please, please, you can go to my website again. I'll give it to you here in a minute. Or you can email me at davidr258 at comcast.net. If you have any questions, you can email me there. You can also sign up on our website. Again, that's www.americanknights.com. Templars.com. And you we can you can send me questions from there too. Everything's hooked up to our email, so we're good there. I uh, just want to thank you for tuning in. And uh, you have a blessed evening. I'll be back on here tomorrow evening, 8 p.m. Central Time, United States.